you ever said to your child when he or she was young, cry, cry, will you? You better stop right now or I'll make you cry a little bit more. You know, I think about Paul in prison. He's heard from Epaphras that there is a great moving of the Holy Spirit on the lives of people he's never met before in Colossae. They've come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, and yet they are experiencing the error of false teachers who are saying, you know, if you think Paul knows the truth, if you think Epaphras has it right, you ought to listen to us. Because we know the hidden things. We know the mystery of God. We know what you don't know. And so you ought to listen to us. And here Paul is in chains. He's writing this letter to them at the end of chapter 1. He says this, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. It's one of the greatest lines from one of the greatest orators of the 20th century who had a stammering tongue. He stuttered, just like his daddy did. But on Sunday night, October 1st, 1939, speaking to a panicked people of Great Britain one month after Germany had declared war on Great Britain, Winston Churchill over the radio was talking about the need for allied support and he said this, I cannot forecast to you the actions of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I've used that line a lot over the years because lives are, our lives are filled with mystery. You know, last week I, I read on the internet a story from scientists. They talked about ten mysteries of life that they've never been able to figure out. For instance... Have you ever thought about this? There are flowers on every one of the continents. And we don't know why. How can there possibly be flowers in Antarctica? It's a mystery. Nobody knows. Or how about this one? 
There are certain animals that can live without oxygen. Nobody knows why. It's a mystery. The finest scientific minds have never discovered the reason. Or how about this one? At the equator, there is more biodiversity than anywhere on the planet. There are more species, there's more disease at the equator than anywhere else. And the scientists know that that's true, but they don't know why. It's a mystery. Or how about this one, my favorite. Did you know that cows eat facing north or south? About 10 years ago, a group of scientists were looking at Google Maps, satellite imagery of six continents, and they noticed something they'd never seen before. They'd see these herd of cattle, and they'd always notice that they would eat and sleep facing north or south, never east or west. And so they began to do an examination, and I don't know where they did this, on what continent, but they took some cows and they faced them east and west. They made sure they just stayed that way, and they wouldn't eat and they wouldn't sleep. Have you ever known that? I mean, think about the value of coming to worship to hear about cows (laughs) facing north and south. Nobody knows why. It's a mystery. Forty-five years ago, I learned another mystery that I've never forgotten. I was in college north of Boston at a Christian school, a small Christian school. When I got there, I discovered that they had something called the Christian Emphasis Week. I thought that was a little weird. I mean, you're already at a Christian school and you have a Christian Emphasis Week, but I went with it. I guess the second year, because I had made such a a fuss about it, uh, they asked me to be on the committee to um, organize the Christian Emphasis Week. And so I got together with a couple of folks, and we began to think about the composition of the student body. Most of the kids were coming from mainline denominational backgrounds or no Christian background at all, so we thought we'd bring in a bunch of charismatics. The charismatic movement, the modern charismatic movement, began at Duquesne University in 1968, and this was 1974, and so we knew that it was sort of cutting edge, and Christian rock music was just out with people like Larry Norman and others, so we invited a bunch of Christian rockers and singers and some Christian speakers like Pat Robertson. Now, most kids had never heard of Pat Robertson, and that was because the Christian Broadcasting Network was in its infancy. They were in about six cities, no cable television. But one person on campus who did know a lot about Pat Robertson was our chaplain, who was an Anglican. And he made it clear to us he had no time for this Yale lawyer, son of a U.S. senator, an international banker turned Christian, turned Christian broadcaster. And so I'll never forget that morning when we were going before the entire student body in a great convocation and Pat was our speaker. As Pat and I went toward the dais, the Anglican chaplain said to me, if he's not done in 20 minutes, I'm turning the mics off. Now Pat laughed that off. But I never forgot it. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever seen a Christian leader treat another Christian leader with disrespect. And from that day on, I remembered that Christian leaders can be just as jealous, 
just as prejudice as any pagan. I also remember what Pat spoke about that day. He stood in front of the, congr- or through the uh, congregation, as it were, of this college, and he said, I'd like to read a text to you. You know what text he used? Colossians 1, 24 to 29. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, here's the mystery. Hidden from beginning of time. The greatest of all mysteries is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now think about Paul sitting in prison. Writing to baby Christians. Who he's never met. He's writing to those who are being challenged by false teachers. And what they're saying is everything Paul and Epaphras have said to you is partially correct, but we have the hidden gems. We have the hidden mystery. We have what you need. And the reason they said it wasn't because they were defenders of truth. The reason they said it was because they had the same jealousies the same prejudice as pagans. And they were inflicting it on a group of baby Christians. It wasn't that they were after the truth. It wasn't, after, it wasn't because they wanted these people to know for their own good. They wanted them to know that these teachers were the ones who are closest to God. So Paul here in prison says, in effect, you want to know a mystery? You want to know a riddle? Wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma? You want to know the greatest secret of human life? I'll tell it to you. I'll give it to you. And he does. So let's dig in and look at it. First of all, notice, if you will, the means of the mystery. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now this verse has caused more heartburn and bafflement over the centuries by Christians than perhaps any other verse in the Scriptures. Because it seems like what Paul is saying is, the work of Christ was incomplete. He says, in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for your sake, the body that is the church. It sounds like what Paul is saying is, that Jesus' suffering was incomplete. It was not sufficient. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Do you remember when God comes to Ananias in in Damascus and He says, I want you to go over to the street called Straight and there you'll find a man by the name of Saul. The Bible doesn't record this, but you know based on what Ananias' reaction to that is, is, yeah, I know who this is. You want me to go see him? He's a persecutor of the church. He's locking us up. He's murdering people I know. 
And the Lord says, I know, Ananias, I want you to go to him. I want you to go now. For I have chosen him as my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, what Paul is saying here is there is only one person's suffering that is totally sufficient to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God, and that is the suffering of Jesus. What Paul is saying here and elsewhere is that because of the gravity of our sin and the holiness of God, there is no sacrifice that is sufficient to satisfy God's judgment than the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, while God accepts the complete sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, the enemies of God don't. Paul knows that every time you stand for Christ, you risk receiving the wrath of men. What he's saying is, in the providence of God, as I preach, as I teach, as I give to you what God has given to me, there will be those who will take it as an opportunity to hate Christ all over again. Years ago, I preached a sermon in this church by the title of Good News, Not Good Views. And what I said in that sermon was right from the text. I said that Jesus came not for good people, but for bad people, because there is nobody that's good. You may think you're good. You may be good to you, or good to your neighbor, or good to your spouse, but to God, you ain't no good. And I pushed it. And as soon as I said that, there was a guy in the back of the church, up there in the sanctuary, and he walked out. And to his credit, he called me uh, in the following week and he said, let's get together. And we did. And we sat at breakfast and he looked across the table and he said, I'm not buying what you're selling. And I said, okay. Can I help it if I'm right? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I said, my problem, your problem is not with me. It's with the Word. Now, it's one thing to disagree with me. It's another thing to disagree with the Word. But it's another thing to seek to sabotage someone's ministry. And that's what he tried to do. And I had the opportunity to rejoice in suffering for the cause of Christ for your sake. You know what Martin Luther said one time? He said, the clearest evidence of the sin of a sinner is the inability for the sinner to acknowledge his own sin. Now think of Paul before Damascus. Before Damascus, he thought he was good. As to the law, blameless. A Pharisee of Pharisees. As to those who are preaching this apparent good news, I hate their news and I hate them. That's what he would have said. And he locked them up. He sanctioned their death. He disagreed with them vehemently. So look at the irony of this. 
the one who caused Christians to suffer for the sake of Christ is the same one now who is suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul knows there's only one way to really understand and know the mystery. And that is to suffer with the suffering Christ. Second, notice the method of the mystery. So we have the means of the mystery. Notice the method, verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. Now think of who's saying this. He's telling babes in Christ something he would never have said before the Damascus Road experience. Paul would have said, I know the fullness of God and it's found in the law and the writings and the prophets. It's found in the Old Testament. I know that the secret of living a godly life is by doing the do's and avoiding the don'ts. He would have seen what he just said as utter blasphemy to make known or make the Word of God fully known? What he's saying is everything prior to Jesus Christ was only a shadow. What Paul is saying is when you look at the Old Testament, all you get is a, a picture that's through a glass darkly. You get shadows. You get images. The false teachers were saying exactly the opposite. They were saying that everything you needed to know about God and His purposes is found in the Old Testament. And they were saying that to observe the law and to keep the customs and abide by the rituals, that's the way in which you really know God. For them, the mystery of life was found in being a better Jew. Now, there's no Jew that could out-Jew Paul. That's what he's really saying. There's no Jew better than me. And then he met Christ. Look what he says. God made me a minister so that I might make the Word of God fully known to you. In other words, everything you had before was a shadow. All you had was a partial truth. All you had were clues. But now you have it fully revealed. Two weeks ago, Terry Griffin and I were in Florida playing golf. And after our round, we went to our host's house. And in this beautiful home was this den that was full of golf memorabilia. And on the wall, at the highest point on the wall, was a picture. And the man said, I saw the guy paint this by hand. And I thought, Aren't all paintings painted by hand? I mean, I guess you could get computer-generated pictures, but I mean, a painting by, by hand. But the guy said, no brush. This guy painted with his fingers. He had a palette of paint, different colors. He'd put his fingers in there and, and paint it. And he said the other thing that was interesting about this, we didn't know this till the end, but he was painting it upside down. And Terry said, I saw a guy do that once. He took a canvas, 
a palette of paint, took his fingers, began to put all these swirls around, and we didn't know what he was doing. All we could see was colors. We couldn't make out anything until he was finished, and he turned it right side up. The guy said, that's what this guy did. And when he turned it right side up, you know what we saw? A picture of Arnold Palmer's face. Think of this. You've got a canvas. You've got a palette of color. You've got your two fingers and you've got a canvas. And you, you turn that canvas. You have it turned in a certain way. And when you're finished, nobody can understand or see what you've done. You turn it around and then it becomes clear. You know what Paul says? The artist came. The artist painted a picture. And when he hung it on the cross, and in three days rose from the grave, all of a sudden, it was turned around, and all of a sudden we understood God became fully known. You don't want to know God? Paul says, look at Jesus. Third, notice the majesty of the mystery. Look at verses 26 and 7. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Remember what he says in verse 2? He says, I'm writing to you who are at Colossae in Christ. In other words, what he's saying to you is you're not just living in Colossae, you're also living in Christ. And in the first week we mentioned how in a couple of years after receiving this letter, the town of Colossae will be destroyed by a great earthquake. Paul didn't know it, the people didn't know it, but God knew it. And what Paul is saying to them a few years before their, their lives are destroyed is that, you know what, you're not just in Colossae. You're not just a citizen of Colossae. You're in Christ. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. But now he says, I want to reveal to you a mystery. It's a mystery that's been hidden from all of the ages and generations. It's Christ in you. You're not just in Christ. Christ is in you. Now think of the meaning of that. All through the Old Testament, if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to a certain place, either the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the, to the temple. God said by His grace and His providence, I will dwell among you there. That's where you need to go. And you have to go there by certain prescribed rules. But look what Paul's saying. God's not just dwelling in a tent now. There's no rules you have to follow. Christ has taken you over. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's why John says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Christ is in you. Now the false teachers were saying that from the time of Moses until that very day, the Jews were it. 
God's entire purpose for the entire world was to benefit the Jews. And yet God hadn't said that. He said just the opposite. He came to Abraham and said, I will bless you. I'll give you land and seed and give you my words so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, you'll simply be a conduit. But the Jews do what we do. They take all the blessings of God and turn them inward. They direct God's best to themselves. Instead of seeing themselves as a conduit, they see themselves as a, as a damned up pool where God's entire purpose is to bless them. God had never said that. But Paul says that's not the end of the story. God's intention was never simply to dwell with the Jews. It was to dwell within the hearts and minds and lives of all kinds of people. To live, to dwell in His holy people, the church, a church in which there are no male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. So the first thing Paul is saying about the mystery is, it's Christ in you, the church. But then he says the other there's another piece to it. And this is the piece that Pat Robertson talked to us 45 years ago about. He said, do you re realize that wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever will your will determines, whatever your mind determines, there's a greater will and a greater mind that is in you, and that's the will and mind of Christ. Do you realize the potential you have with the God of the universe dwelling in you? Seventy years ago, a man came to Pittsburgh. His name was Sam Shoemaker. He came from New York City. He came to Calvary Episcopal Church in Shadyside. There were a lot of places that were after him, but he chose to come to Pittsburgh. And when he came to Pittsburgh, he was here about six years before he died. And during those six years, the seeds of more than a hundred ministries that still exist today in this city and this country were birthed. They were planted. They've taken root. Not only were the seeds of ministries planted during that time, but also a vision was set forth for this city that has never changed. In fact, I've been in this city for almost 30 years, and I've probably heard at least 50 times all different kinds of people, all different Christians from around the city, quote, make these two statements that Sam Shoemaker made. The most famous one is this. God's desire for Pittsburgh is to make Pittsburgh more famous for God than for steel. God's purpose for this city is to make Pittsburgh more famous for God than for steel. But that begs the question, how? And that brings us to a second point, or a second statement that's famous. I've heard this over and over again. There is more power in the pews of Pittsburgh than all the blast furnaces in western Pennsylvania. He said that in the 1950s when Pittsburgh produced 75% of all the steel in the world. 
there's more power in the pews of Pittsburgh than in all the blast furnaces in western Pennsylvania. How could he say that? Because he knew what Paul knows. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then fourth, finally, notice the miracle of the mystery. Look at verse 29. This is a miracle. Paul says this, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works in me. Do you see what he's saying? There's no Paul here. What he's saying is, I toil, I toil for what? He tells us in verse 28, to present everyone mature in Christ. And the word he uses for struggle here, or toil, is the word agony. He uses it throughout his letters. It means to exhaust himself. But notice the energy he exhausts in himself. It's not his, it's Christ's. He says, I exhaust myself with all His energy. All the energy of Christ. Do you see what Christ has done in Him? Do you see the fantastic miracle of this mystery that Christ has wrought in Him? It is that Christ is preeminent in His life to the point that Christ has virtually replaced Paul. He's caused him to lose himself. Years ago in this city, Catherine Kuhn was asked to put her signature in a Bible, and I've told you this, she didn't. She wrote these words, The beginning of greatness is to be small. The increase of greatness is to be less. The perfection of greatness is to be nothing at all. And that's what we see in Paul. Remember what he says to the, to the Corinthians in the second letter? We call it 2 Corinthians. He said, three times I besought God to remove the thorn in my flesh. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And you know his response? Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness... For in my weakness, Christ's power rests on me. Do you know the word he uses there? The power of God resting on him? It's the same word the angel said to Mary. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. He will rest upon you. In 1994, a guy by the name of Bob Coughlin wrote these words to a song that perfectly expresses this. More of you, less of me. Oh, my Father, I want to be a spotless vessel so all may see more of you and less of me. Do you know what spotless means? No more jealousies. No more prejudice. No more you 
That's what we see in Paul. That's the mystery of the gospel. That Christ can so take us over that it's all Him and not us. It's not a riddle anymore. It's not a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It is Christ in you and me. That's the hope of glory. Think about that.